Welcome to First Do No Harm with Massachusetts Citizens for Life board member and physician, Dr. Mark Rollo. This broadcast will focus on medical ethics from a Catholic perspective and address abortion, physician-assisted suicide, contraception, natural family planning, IVF, healthcare proxy, and other topics. Please be advised that this show may not be appropriate for children under 13. Hello and welcome back to First Do No Harm, a show about medical ethics from a Catholic perspective. I am Dr. Mark Rollo. Today I will continue the discussion regarding modern natural family planning, and I will play part two of my interview with Kathy Rivett, a Creighton Model Method natural family planning teacher and teacher of teachers who has trained natural family planning instructors all over the world. Let us first begin, as always, with prayer. For as stated by the U.S. Catholic bishops, only with prayer, prayer that storms the heavens for justice and mercy, prayer that cleanses our hearts and souls, will the culture of death that surrounds us today be replaced by a culture of life. Let us pray in the spirit of St. John Paul II, who gave us his tremendous work, Theology of the Body. O God, you are a communion of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the person of Jesus at the wedding feast of Cana, you changed water into wine. In the same way, you transformed marriage to the level of a sacrament. Just as your love is total gift to us, may married love be total gift of husband and wife to each other. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time I discussed the four prophecies of St. Paul VI in Humanae Vitae. The first prophecy was that if the church's teaching on contraception were ignored, there would be an increase in marital infidelity and general moral decline. Sadly, this prophecy has been fulfilled in many ways, as detailed in the last show. The second prophecy of St. Paul VI was that contraception would lead to the loss of respect for women. The irony of so-called reproductive rights, hailed as a boon for women, in reality ushered in the exploitation, abandonment, and impoverishment of women. So-called reproductive rights for women are actually exploitation rights for men. Women in the hookup culture are expected to contracept and to abort if contraception fails. Abuse of power by government was the third prophecy of St. Paul VI. He stated in Humanae Vitae, who will prevent public authorities from favoring what they believe to be the most effective contraceptive methods and from mandating that everyone must use them? whenever they consider it necessary. 
Last time I gave you many current examples of this prophecy, which has lamentably been fulfilled. This includes contraceptive mandates in this country to forced abortion in communist China. St. Paul VI warned that contraception would lead not only to governmental abuse of power, but to personal abuse of power. This was his fourth prophecy. Sex without babies has led to babies without sex in the industry of in vitro fertilization, where babies are treated as products rather than life flowing from love. The sterile sex of contraception has also led to the attempt to normalize another form of sterile sex, homosexuality. In Humanae Vitae, St. Paul VI made an appeal to men of science to clarify the conditions which favor a moral ordering of human procreation and to establish a satisfactorily clear basis for the moral regulation of offspring. St. Paul VI further challenged men of science to show that no true contradiction exists between the divine laws for transmitting life and those for fostering true conjugal love. Many men of science have accepted the challenge from St. Paul VI. One such physician scientist was Dr. Tom Hilgers, who developed the Creighton model of natural family planning. Natural family planning, in particular the Creighton model, allows couples to read and learn the bodily messages of fertility and enables a profound respect for their fertility. Specifically, a woman can learn to observe changes in cervical secretions emanating from the vagina. She can be instructed to notice the day-to-day changes in the cervical mucus, changes in color, clarity, stretch, and sensation that tells her that ovulation is approaching. These observations are a window to the ovary, which is producing rising amounts of estrogen, which is producing these changes in cervical mucus. Once the rising estrogen levels reach a peak, ovulation occurs, and the follicle that produced estrogen transforms into a corpus luteum, which stands for yellow body. And it starts to produce progesterone, which helps prepare the lining of the uterus to receive a fertilized egg. Progesterone also dramatically dries up cervical mucus. This dramatic change tells the woman that ovulation has occurred. The roughly six days prior to ovulation and the three days after ovulation are the fertile days, and women become very confident in making these observations. The beauty of this system is that it works with women who have irregular cycles for whatever reason. And so, calendar calculations of the old rhythm method are not necessary. This fertility care system, along with the medical applications of NAPRO technology, preserves the unitive and procreative meaning of our bodies. There are no barriers. There is no destruction. The holiness of the sexual union is respected. I would now like to play part two of my interview with Kathy Rivett as she discusses the early days of modern natural family planning and how it has evolved into an ethical and effective 
gynecological health care system. We pick up the interview where Kathy talks about reading Humana Vitae for the first time, along with her husband Joe, shortly after the release of the encyclical, and not long after she and Joe were married in 1968. Joe was in a master's degree program uh, in religious education down at Emmanuel College. And that's how we were able to actually get our hands on the document Mm -hmm. and uh, read it. And it was very enlightening and life changing Mm -hmm. because I remember saying, well, this is a lot more than you can't take the pill. Right, right. (laughs) There was so much more to it. Now, when, when we got married, you know, we were committed to not using hormonal contraception. And uh, I remember my mother giving me her calendar rhythm formula, which was very simple. Mm-hmm. It was 10, 10, 10. First 10 days of the cycle are infertile, middle 10 days fertile, last 10 days infertile. Mm-hmm. So then that, that worked fine. Yeah. And then after the first baby was born and I went in for a six-week checkup and my doctor said, what are you going to do for family planning? And I told him, and he said that was way too conservative, and he gave me his formula. And then 11 months later, we had our son, Joe, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, which was wonderful. You know, we were, we yeah. were very thrilled and delighted. Yeah, but mom, then, mom uh, knew best, though, huh? Right. <laughs> a year and a half later, uh, we welcomed Mary, and that was wonderful. Yeah. But then we started to be a little more serious my doctor had diagnosed a condition with the heart which now we know wasn't that serious but Mm -hmm. we didn't know at the time Mm -hmm. and so we started to research and find out what what else is there was able to i still don't know how i got connected to uh john kipley with the couple to couple right right and his uh book the art of nfp had just come out or was about to come out and he sent me a manuscript of that book, wow. and so that's what we used. Mm-hmm. And then we brought John Kipley to New Hampshire, and this would have been in 1974, I believe. And we brought him to New Hampshire, and he trained some people here, some teachers, in the couple to couple week. Yes. And yeah, you know, and so, so you that were kind on of the be- ground floor of that. Right. So that kind of began our journey. The intention was not to teach other couples. We yeah. were looking for information for ourselves. Yeah. But, you know, you as young couples, you talk about, you know, I have friends who are on the birth control pill and having headaches and problems. Yeah. And so I would share what I was doing and they wanted to know more about it. And I kind of found myself teaching them what I was doing and then felt, oh, there's a responsibility here. I better find out more. Yeah. <laughs> and that began, you know, the journey of uh, learning about the Billings, Mercedes Wilson and Serena in Canada and, uh, you know, a number of other natural methods. Mm-hmm. And that was fine. It worked very well and people were happy and I was teaching couples. We had no books. We had no charts. I would give them graph paper and teach them how to do a temperature chart. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and uh, and then, uh, I don't know if you remember mimeographs. Oh, I remember <laughs> them very well. <laughs> <laughs> we mimeographed handouts 
with some basic instructions. Yeah. And like I said, for about 80% of couples, that worked very well. Right. But then there was the the breastfeeding woman right. postpartum without regular cycles, mm-hmm. without a temperature rise, or the perimenopausal woman. Right. Uh, and other women with polycystic ovaries. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't so predictable. Right. So in 1978, when I found out that there was going to be a medical school in Omaha, Nebraska, that was going to do a training, I thought, well, that's, you know, that's where I need to be. Yeah. And that, you know, certainly started uh, started the journey. Mm-hmm. Well, in, I think it was 1980, by then there had been two classes. Each one probably had about... 60 or 70 um, students that came through. And we thought this was wonderful. It's a new method that became known as Creighton Model, mm-hmm. uh, Natural Family Planning and now Fertility Care. But we thought, well, what about quality assurance? Mm-hmm. What about down the, what about 10 years from now? Um, how are we going to keep up to date right. on new information? What about research? Who's going to vet the research? How are we? What about the materials for our clients? How yes. are we going to assure quality and standardization, which right. is a big component of Creighton Model? How are we going to assure that? And so there were 10 of us who got together. It was in Omaha. Dr. Hilges uh, facilitated the meeting. I was following one of the education phases of training. And we just sort of looked at what is currently out there in natural family planning, mm-hmm. what is needed, and is there a need to create something else or something different? Because uh, none of us, we were all pretty much busy in our own locations from all over the country. Right. None of us wanted to do something if it wasn't needed. Yeah. So, and we just decided that there was definitely a need for standardization and yes. quality assurance yes. and continuing education. So that was the beginning of the American Academy. We uh, wrote the bylaws and had the first meeting in 1981. Right. Well, I can just tell you from a medical point of view that the, the standardization is absolutely key because you can't uh, you can't really sell something as being effective unless you've studied it, and you can't study it unless it's been standardized. So, exactly. you know, the Creighton Model Natural Family Planning originally, now the Creighton Model Fertility Care System, is really the gold standard in, in terms of uh, being able to teach it and people being able to understand what's being taught and, and most importantly, speaking the same language all around the world. That's right. And and that's uh, you know that's a tremendous uh, achievement, and and that's what drew me to the Creighton model uh, method. Uh, I had like you, I had started out with uh, Symptothermal, and um, mm-hmm. and that was a very good system too, and and is a good system. But uh, Creighton model took it a step further, and also what really appealed to me um, had the uh, all the uh, medical applications which we now now call uh, napro technology which was mm-hmm. developed by dr hilgers and I'm, I'm curious about your initial um impressions of uh, dr hilgers when you 
met him back in the day. Sure, sure, because uh, we were all a lot younger back then. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, before going to Omaha in in uh, '78, I had been uh, searching. Joe and I both had been searching, so we had been to another a number of other natural family planning conferences mm-hmm. and teacher trainings and. You know, that type of thing. And, of course, it's just human nature. One, You go to one group there, and you're going to hear we're so much better than the others. Yeah. And you go to that one, we're so much better than the others. And so when I went to Omaha, I was fully preparing to hear that. You know, I went in as a symptothermal teacher. Mm-hmm. And it struck me that Dr. Hilges had such a deep respect for anyone involved in the field of natural family planning. And I never heard anything negative about any of the others. I also found him to be um, a great listener Mm -hmm. and uh, very motivated, very driven to um, learn the most that he could. Initially, you know, Dr. Hilge's story, um, when Humane Vitae came out, like a lot of us, he was like, my gosh, what does this mean? Right. He was at a point in his training where he thought, how can I be an OBGYN? Yeah. What can I offer couples for family planning? And so that was one of his motivations when he read Humane Vitae and read Pope Paul VI Challenge to Men of Science. Because Pope Paul VI... I truly believe was inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. but he himself wasn't quite sure how this could be accomplished. And um, then, because I I remember the Billings saying when they met with Pope Paul VI after Humanae Vitae and told the Pope about their work, he was moved because he said, I knew there was a way the Holy Spirit was leading him in this direction. Mm. And the same thing with Dr. Hilgis when he read that, he felt called yes. you know, to do this work. Yes. And so initially it was to have one of the best natural methods of family planning for couples that was very respectful of um, the couple and of marriage and fertility. And uh, I remember very early on um, Dr. Hilger saying, you know, I'm seeing charts where women have these symptoms. Maybe it was premenstrual brown spotting. Mm-hmm. And then it seems like these women tend to have a miscarriage if they get pregnant. Mm-hmm. So he started to do some research. And he's, of course, he's got that mind of a researcher. Right. And every blood sample that was taken at the Institute, I believe, is still frozen yeah. there. You yeah, know? I remember him because saying that. Because as, as other uh, things come up, they can go back and look at charts, compare them with the blood work, and see, right. you know, the connection. And sure enough, he, he did find that um, this, this sign or symptom, I mean, you can't diagnose from the chart, but it was often an indicator right. of low progesterone in the woman's cycle. Yes, and so when that was supplemented with natural progesterone, it would um, that symptom would go away and yes. it was help it was helpful in preventing miscarriage. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure you could speak a lot more to that. Right. Well, I, I you know that what you're describing about Dr. Hilders, that that is the very 
definition of a scientist, somebody who just makes simple observations and has enough of an open mind to make an observation such as a little bit of bleeding right before the uh, period begins and then to, you know, have the capability to, uh, to study that and to find out that uh, it, it is just one of the many signs that we can now read in a uh, chart uh, that tells us that there's some medical problem. In fact, the first mutual patient that we had, it's a, sto- it's a story I like to tell, <laughs> is, sure. was a woman who, um, young woman who came to me um, for the first time after having had a miscarriage. And so I had been newly aware of the Creighton model and I had met you, so I sent her to see you and you taught her the, uh, the method and you, you know, made the diagnosis uh, before I did. You could see that her, her luteal phase was short. And um, uh, maybe uh, before we go, you know, use too much jargon, um, <laughs> with the, uh, maybe you could just say a little bit. This is a, uh, the Creighton model is a modification of, of the Billings method. And you met, doc, you, you mentioned uh, uh, doctors right. uh, Billings uh, from Australia, and they had met Pope Paul the sixth, and right. um, and they used a simple a mucus observation method rather than a temperature method, and that's one of the things that intrigued me about Creighton model that you didn't have to rely on a, a thermometer. Maybe you could right. say uh, a little bit about what kind of observations that a a woman makes uh, and what kind of indicators can tell you that this woman is a at risk for miscarriage, just like my first patient that uh, I shared with you. Sure, sure. Uh, Well, one of the, we've talked about standardization, and uh, what we teach clients is um, to record their observations in a very standardized way. We call it the vaginal discharge recording system, which Mm -hmm. is a long word that simply means a shorthand approach. So the woman may test her cervical mucus, and there's uh, numbers and letters that'll tell us exactly what she's observed, Mm -hmm. which when I first learned it, I said, this is wonderful because clients using the other methods I taught were using their own words to describe it, and I Mm -hmm. really didn't know what they were observing. But because of this, we know exactly what they are observing. And you use the term luteal phase, and that's the time from ovulation until the next menstruation. Mm -hmm. And because ovulation can be um, very accurately identified, we can determine the length of the luteal phase in cycles. Mm -hmm. And we know that if it's too short, it's not long enough to support a pregnancy. Right. If it's too long, it might mean that the woman may not even be ovulating. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that's one of the biomarkers. Yes. Then as the years went on, you know, Dr. Hilders, I mean, he's, he's just on fire with this. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, he, he sees something and he says, I got to look into this. I yeah. got to figure out, you know, what this means. And um, so, my gosh, it's over 20 years ago now. He developed what we call the the mucus cycle scoring Mm -hmm. 
because uh, we're so definitive in the way the woman describes her, her mucus, mm-hmm. we can assign a numerical value to things like color, consistency, stretch. And then there's a formula we use, and it comes up with a score. Yeah. Now, he's taken those scores and the research at the Institute, not only through blood work, but through ultrasound. They have a a wonderful ultrasound department at the Institute in Omaha. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's a training site for the University of Nebraska for mm-hmm. their ultrasonographers. So he would he would do daily ultrasounds, actually observing the follicle that was preparing yes. for ovulation, yes. measuring it, getting information on the follicle, and then comparing it to mucus cycle scores. Mm-hmm. And so from the mucus cycle scores, he was able to identify, you probably know this better than me, I think like seven or nine different uh, ovulation defects uh, based on the mucus cycle score, which is... Yeah, it's really Amazing. phenomenal. It's really phenomenal. He has he has uh, he studied in such detail. He could follow uh, a a follicle on the ovary, and he could see did it did the follicle have an egg in it? Did it right. have uh, other structures? Was it empty? Was it empty? Yeah. You know, uh, right. And so he was really able to go into minute uh, detail about defining different ovulatory defects but um, you know getting back to the to the person I was referring to uh, we didn't you don't necessarily need all this um, instrumentation Uh, you were able to um, determine that this particular patient I was uh, talking about had a short luteal phase so and ovulation usually happens uh, 12 to 14 days or so uh, later Mm -hmm. Um, but this particular woman only had a, uh, I think it was like an eight or nine day luteal phase. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you saw that, you sent her back to me and, and said, uh, well, I think I know why she miscarried. She, has, she doesn't have a luteal phase long enough to support a new pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, that was it. I drew some blood just to confirm that that was the problem. And her progesterone levels uh, were low. And that's the other great thing that you can target your, you can't just draw blood any old time you have to time it to the cycle so i would look at her chart i could see on her chart where she likely ovulated and then i could take a few blood samples uh after ovulation and sure enough she had low progesterone level and i'd very simply the simple fix for this was just to put her on progesterone in the luteal phase and and again you you target your treatment to the to the uh, chart as well because if you give progesterone too early it's uh, it's not going to work so i did give her the uh, progesterone she went on to have four boys <laughs> <laughs> not all at once but each time she got right. pregnant we went ahead and started her uh, right away and she uh, and she was able to uh, achieve pregnancy This concludes part two of my interview with Kathy Rivett. Tune in next week for the third and final segment of the interview when we will discuss in more detail the amazing results of NAPRO technology even after failed IVF. You can learn more about NAPRO technology at naprotechnology.com and you can find 
a Creighton model instructor near you at fertilitycare.org. Until next time, remember, we should always treat life with care and respect. And at the very least, we should first do no harm. Thank you for tuning in to First Do No Harm. Dr. Rollo welcomes your questions and comments. You may contact him at markrollo978 at gmail.com. That's M-A-R-K-R-O-L-L-O 978 at gmail.com. Thank you, and until next week, remember, first do no harm.